0: Great. Good morning to Medical Grand Rounds. Hello, everyone. Before we introduce today's speaker, I just want to uh, thank Karen Hike and Auden McClure and the others who have put together the Culinary Medicine Program. As you know, before Medical Grand Rounds, we will prepare breakfast, and the idea is to be uh, educating ourselves in nutrition, in good food selection, and uh, food choices. So. I thank them for all of the efforts that are going to go on through this year and forward. Today, we're delighted to have a guest speaker for our Jerome Brody Lectureship, Dr. Brown from Denver. And he's going to be introduced to us by Rick Enelow. Rick is a professor of medicine in our Department of Medicine. He's the Section Chief of Pulmonary Medicine and Critical Care. He's our Vice Chair for Research (laughs) in the Department of Medicine. And he works in synergy uh, actively in the programs of of our Translational Research Unit. So
1: Rick. Thanks, Rich. Um, So I want to welcome everybody to the uh, Jerome Brody Lectureship, um, made possible by the IRA Jerome Brody 44 Memorial Endowment Fund. And before I introduce Dr. Brown, Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Mr. Jerry Brody for whom the lectureship is named and his widow, Mrs. Marlon Brody. So Jerry attended Dartmouth uh, and Tuck School of Business. He was an energetic, visionary individual um, who initiated the movement to create high quality destination restaurants in New York City. Uh, and beginning with The Four Seasons, as well as Gallagher's Steakhouse and the Grand Central Oyster Bar, um, which I have visited many times. Um, his widow, uh, Marlon Brody, moved to Paris uh, in 1954, where she worked as a translator and interpreter for John Steinbeck. She also became uh, interpreter and, and assistant to, to Jerry, who was in France to to redevelop a hotel in his business firm. After she and Jerry returned to the United States in 1964, she became a partner in Jerry's business. Jerry, unfortunately, died of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And that's the focus of this lectureship, professorship. And um, Ms. Brody's generosity supports research in the field of fibrosing lung disease, uh, both clinical and basic. Um, Marlon currently runs Gallagher Studs in in Ghent, New York, which she and her husband started in 1978. And it's a leading thoroughbred breeding farm. So we're very appreciative to Mrs. Brody for her generosity. And we are quite pleased that she is joining us today with special her special guests, John and Day, and perhaps we could uh, have a hand of applause. Uh, so it's 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 a pleasure to uh, introduce Kevin Brown, uh, who is vice chair, of the Department of Medicine, Professor of Medicine at National Jewish, where he's been for quite a number of years. Um, Kevin and I go back a ways in the build in the, in the subculture of, of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis it's, that uh, has been working um, tirelessly, if not uh, as successfully as we would like, although he's going to tell you about some recent successes, I think. Um, and this is a list of the potential disc- disclosures and conflict of interests for anyone uh, to take note of. Um, Kevin has been the acting head of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division uh, in the past at National Jewish in Denver. Um, And as I said, he's been a major thought leader in the field. He's published over 160 papers in the field. And we're delighted to have him discuss his insights into uh, the nature of this type of disease and diseases of this ilk. So without further ado, Dr. Brown.
2: I get back to... Pleasure to be here. Actually, I consider it a, a real treat to be asked to honor the memory of, uh, of Mr. Brody and to be here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Allo, and talk to you today about something Rick and I have been thinking about actually for many, many years, and that's this idea about fibrosing lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis. So I'll acknowledge my uh, disclosures again and point out that that very bottom line that there are actually no approved therapies for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis these days and I'm gonna talk to you about why that's a problem. So I'm gonna use this to sort of start the conversation and so a handful of years ago a number of us got together as an excuse to have dinner and have an occasional drink to talk about IPF and to try to think about what we had learned over 20 years to put together a statement. And these were folks from the US, Europe, Japan, Korea. And we focused on this because there is a problem. And the problem is as follows. Patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis live a short life. This is data that we published many years ago. There's data that predates this by 20 years and data that now, within the past two years, that suggests we've had absolutely no impact on the median survival during the duration of our understanding of this disease. We know that patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis have a poor quality of life, no matter how you measure it. This, one of our colleagues, Dr. Martinez showing just in the SF36, looking at every individual domain (coughs) is depressed except for pain. So all of those things that are related to how you think about the quality of your life are negatively impacted by the disease. We now know that the functional status measured in a variety of ways, this being the continuous scale of functional uh, performance testing, is impaired. Particularly lower (laughs) extremity, strength, and endurance, for reasons that we don't particularly understand. But it is quite clear that how you physically interact with the world is significantly affected. We know that patients with pulmonary fibrosis spend a fair bit of time interacting with the healthcare system. This looks at folks before, and that's in the pre-index column there, and after spend about twice as much time interacting with the hospital system and with the medical system as as a matched control group (laughs) of Medicare patients without pulmonary fibrosis. We know that hospitalizations for this disease have been increasing at about 5% a year, both in the United States and in the UK, and we have every reason to believe the same is true in the rest of the places around the world. Oops. The costs are considerable to the healthcare system. They're at least twice what an age and gender match control population are for patients without pulmonary fibrosis. And patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis die from their disease. So when looking at a retrospective view of large populations, we'd say, well, about 60% of patients actually die of <laughs> respiratory failure. But when you actually spend more time looking at this, this looking from an autopsy series from our colleagues in Mayo suggested that well, at least two-thirds of patients die of respiratory disease. But then when you specifically look at this in the context of a f- formal treatment trial, it looks like almost all of the patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis will die of respiratory failure. So even though this is an older population with coronary disease, at risk for lung cancer, and all of the other comorbidities associated with aging. This disease ends up causing your death. And unlike the mortality rates associated with lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, looking at multi-million patient databases, the rates of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis have increased actually quite dramatically over the last decade. We now have data up to 2012 that showed this continuous increase in the rates of mortality associated with this disease. Now, some of this is clearly case finding. Actually, the high penetration of high-resolution CT scans in the world these days now allows us to say, well, Uncle Jim actually didn't die of COPD. He actually had pulmonary fibrosis. So there's been tremendous misdiagnosis over time, and as we have gotten better at understanding this, it turns out the disease is much more common than we had previously appreciated. So it's a problem? Amplifying that problem is that the clinical course is really quite unpredictable. We've known for many, many, many years that if you look at patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and describe them as mild, moderate, or severe in any way that you want to, by symptoms, by radiology, by physiology, that if you look over six months, this is the number of patients that remain stable, and this is the number of patients that historically have been shown to progress by some measure during that time. We now know more than that, but unfortunately, the story's not much better. If you look at time on the bottom and disease severity on your left, and you make it better at the top and worse at the bottom, again, no matter how you measure it, this is historically how we've considered the disease affected people. That there was this gradual progression that every time you saw them in clinic, they would be a little bit worse. We now know that there are a series of patients that will show up in respiratory failure. Their first diagnosis will be in the emergency room in respiratory failure, often ending up in the intensive care unit requiring assisted ventilation. But there are also, and this is the one thing that we've learned from actually doing formal treatment trials, which I cannot impress upon you, has fundamentally changed how we've understood this disease. There are some patients who seem to actually stay quite stable sometime for years. It's the minority. But it's also quite clear that some patients have significant lung fibrosis but remain stable. But then there are these things that happen that fundamentally alter that course of disease. That somebody is fine and has been fine for two years and suddenly, over less than six weeks, develop rapidly progressive lung um, deterioration and respiratory failure. And we call these things acute exacerbations. There's been a fair bit of work that's gone into this. And what we do know is this is not infection. This is not aspiration. This is not heart failure. This is not a pulmonary embolus. What it looks like is a rapid progression of the, of the fibrosis that we understand underlies this disease, but is precipitated by things we don't understand. And it leads to rapid deterioration and death. The outcome of this is generally death within the hospital and death Almost universally within a year after they occur. All right, so I've described the problem, or why I, at least I think it's a problem uh, for you. And so I want to go through sort of the details of how we've decided the diagnosis should be made and then touch on some of these things. So we think about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in the following way we need to exclude the other causes of fibrosing lung disease because IPF by definition is a diagnosis of exclusion. High resolution CT scan has fundamentally (laughs) altered how we think about diffuse lung disease and in particular neopathic pulmonary fibrosis and there's a pattern called usual interstitial pneumonia or UIP that we see on chest imaging in the the majority of patients that allows us to make the diagnosis without a lot of additional information certain times we need surgical lung biopsies. And it's the combination of that clinical context, the chest imaging pattern, and the pattern seen on biopsy that allows us to come to a conclusive diagnosis. So let's walk through how this might work. So here's the problem. So a patient comes to see with cough or breathlessness and they have a chest radiograph that looks like this and it's abnormal. And so from the doctor's perspective, this is the problem. There's a list that looks like this and a list that looks like that of all of those diseases from the most commonly used textbook of interstitial lung disease that this could potentially be. So obviously, that is much too complicated. Nobody has the time to deal with that. So we think about it in the following way. Interstitial lung disease includes a wide variety of disorders. It includes all these anatomic compartments of the lung. But one of the reasons that I like this is it forces us to interact with our colleagues in ways that we often don't. And we often need information from other colleagues. We have to actively communicate about the patient in a way that adds a lot of value to the care of the patient. So this is how I think about it. There is the clinical context in which the disease occurs, there is the chest imaging pattern that one adds, and there's the pathologic pattern that one adds like you're putting together a puzzle. And once you have that puzzle put together, you finally get to the diagnosis, or at least a small differential diagnosis that allows you to make a statement about where you are in helping this patient. So let's think about the clinical context for a minute. So when you think about the broad universe of pulmonary fibrosis, there are a number of things we need to consider. It turns out that around the world, infection is probably the, the largest cause of pulmonary fibrosis, and that is almost always mycobacterial disease. So certainly in the third world and often in the second world, tuberculosis is a continued, pro- continuous problem. Part of the healing process when the disease is controlled is fibrosis. It's often upper lobe, it's often generally characteristic, but I will tell you in places where this occurs, almost no other diagnosis is made in the setting of fibrosis. By default, because of the prevalence, this is what you're dealing with. At the other extreme these days, we understand there are a number of genetic conditions that we uh, that we recognize as associated with the development of lung fibrosis, and I know last year you had one of my colleagues, David Schwartz, come and talk about this issue of familial forms of lung fibrosis. And, and he published this study along with a number of collaborators, including our group, about this genome-wide association, where we found a bunch of targets, including this mucin muc5B as important. But there are a number of other things. Surfactant protein A, surfactant protein C has been recognized. There's a lot of work in telomerase abnormalities now where it's recognized as a source of pulmonary fibrosis and cirrhosis and bone marrow failure. But there are a number of targets that we now understand are clearly related. However, the things that we often think about are these issues associated with systemic disorders. So the lung is a prominent component of the disease. However, the disease is a systemic disease and affects multiple organs. So stage four sarcoid one of the things that we think about, fibrosing forms of sarcoidosis, collagen vascular or connective tissue disease, very commonly complicated by fibrosing lung disease. And even forms of immunodeficiency, also associated with the development of fibrosing lung disease. And then the thing that I spend an enormous amount of my time with a patient on, and that's exposures. And the problem with exposures is that they're not exposures Mm -hmm. that necessarily happened yesterday or a week ago or a month ago. These could have happened 20 years ago. So medications, we're talking about high doses of amiodarone that might have been used remotely. Drugs and tobacco, occupational exposures. it takes about 20 years for asbestos exposure to show up as clinically significant fibrosing lung disease. Avocational, environmental, and accidental exposures all can develop over time, although a varying length of time, fibrosing reaction that results in clinically significant respiratory impairment. So it's only after you've excluded infection, underlying recognized genetic condition, systemic disorders and exposures, can you then decide that you're in this category of what we consider idiopathic disease. So it's actively reducing the potential implications. So why does the clinical context matter? So if we look at patients, I'll show you a series of kaplan meier curves here. If we look at patients seen in single centers and compare patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and then compare a similarly situated age and gender match control population with similar respiratory impairment and give them a characterized connective tissue disease recognizing that the forms of lung fibrosis in this setting might be different, it is quite clear that the outcomes are different. Now, it's not great, but it is much better than if you have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. You can get it even a little finer, and you can say, well, we know that idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis de- is defined by a very specific type of pattern seen on pathology on surgical lung biopsy called usual interstitial ammonia, or UIP. If you just take patients who have that form of pathology in their surgical lung biopsy and then compare them you find patients with connective tissue disease that have the same underlying pathology on surgical lung biopsy, and if you match them for age, gender, and, and physiologic impairment, there is still a difference. So for reasons that are unclear to us, the clinical context in which this particular form of fibrosing lung disease lives acts differently, treats these patients differently. But again, you will see in that setting that having a connective tissue disease with this pattern of lung fibrosis is no picnic either. All right, so we've talked about the clinical context. Let's talk about how CT scan has changed how we think about diffuse lung disease. So when I think about a high resolution CT scan, I think about it in the same way that I think about plane chest radiograph. So there are a number of individual features, ground glass consolidation, nodules, lines, cysts, honeycombing, decreased lung attenuation that you can take as you look at that image and you can distribute them within the chest. And you That's in the cranial caudal plane, top to bottom, the axial plane, inside to outside, and the secondary pulmonary lobule. And then you can take those individual radiographic features you distribute them within the lung, and you create a pattern. And that's what we do every day when we see patients, right? We're creating patterns based on symptoms, physiology, whatever. So imaging, we can do exactly the same thing. And so when we think about the UIP, or usual interstitial pneumonia pattern seen on the high-resolution CT scan, which is the pattern that we're looking at, this is a bilateral, basal, and peripheral disease. So this is what it looks like from inside to out. This is what it looks like from top to bottom. So what you see is all of this fibrosis in the bottom of the lung. It's characterized by these reticular lines, which, when you blow those up, are these little white lines in the periphery of the lung that abut the pleural space. There is traction bronchiectasis, so the airways themselves are pulled open. They're not inflamed. This is not infection. The lung is stiff. These small airways do not have cartilaginous support. So a stiff lung pulls open the airways, and this confirms the underlying fibrosis. And then there's this thing that we call honeycombing because it looks like a honeycomb, which are clustered subpleural cysts, which turn out to be an important measure of the presence of this UIP pattern. So when you put these things together, you can describe in words what we see. Basal predominant, peripheral predominant, reticular abnormality with honeycombing and traction bronchiectasis in the absence of the following. So there are a number of features that could be seen that you should not see in order to be confident in the underlying diagnosis. Because all of these things in red would suggest an alternative explanation for what you're seeing. So we spent a lot of time thinking about this and looking for this because if you see that pattern, if you were to do a surgical lung biopsy with that CT pattern, you would find this pattern on your left 95% of the time, which is the fibrosing UIP pattern. Unfortunately, they use both the radiologist and the pathologist use exactly the same term for this, but the issue was that the presence of this CT pattern obviated the need for surgical lung biopsy. Previously, we did surgical lung biopsies and the overwhelming majority of these patients confirmed the underlying diagnosis. These days, we need a surgical lung biopsy in less than half the patients because the CT scan is so specific. All right, so we talked about the chest imaging. But I've referred to this issue about surgical lung biopsy and pathology. And let's think about the pathologic pattern because it helps us understand a little bit about what's going on in the lung. So you can do exactly the same thing with the pathologic pattern that you've done with the radiology. You can take individual features, you can distribute them anatomically within the structures of the lung, and you create a pattern. And so those pathologic features, generally, when we think about surgical lung biopsies, are the following, right? This is not lung cancer. Mm -hmm. The pathologist cannot give you the answer. The pathologist can only give you a pattern that you take as a piece of the puzzle and put in to try to make the rest of the picture. So this is almost some combination of the following. Inflammation, lymphoplasmacytic, eosinophilic, neutrophilic, whatever, fibrosis and architectural distortion. Those are the features that we often think about and then we distribute them in their anatomic compartments around the pulmonary parenchyma, the airway, the pulmonary vasculature of the pleura, and you create these pathologic patterns of disease. And when you look at these under the microscope all the time, like I do, these all are clearly different disorders. But let's talk about that thing that characterizes idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So there is marked fibrosis with architectural distortion and microscopic honeycombing, which is not the correlate of macroscopic honeycombing. This is not the radiographic honeycombing. This is a significantly different uh, order of magnitude. But you see small honeycombs here as well. But you also see this heterogeneity that's unusual. But all this underlying <coughs> red stuff is fibrosis. It is subplural, just like the chest imaging. It's paraceptal. It is patchy. There are often areas of near normal lung and there are these things described as fibroblast foci that we think are the engines of fibrosis in this disease. These are collections, really neighborhoods of myofibroblasts that have been uh, shown to be very active in the elaboration of collagen. And you see these clustered in areas between densely fibrotic and near normal lungs and We've actually previously shown that these appear to all be connected, suggesting a network of progressive fibrosis in the lung. This is the UIP pathologic pattern seen in surgical lung biopsy. This is often contrasted with other forms of fibrosing lung disease. For example, one of the things that we commonly try to separate out is this issue of non-specific interstitial pneumonia. Yeah. This is an NSIP surgical lung biopsy on your left and an NSIP chest imaging pattern on your right. And the reason we make those distinctions <laughs> is, is as follows. So similar series of Kaplan-Meier curves, if you take a patient with an idiopathic interstitial ammonia and a surgical lung biopsy that is UIP, i.e. the definition of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and you compare those, same folks, age, gender, and physiology matched controls with patients who have a surgical lung biopsy that is now described as non-specific interstitial pneumonia. there is a significant difference in outcome regardless of how they're treated. So again, for some reason, these patients progress much less rapidly than those with IPF. We also know that the combination of the clinical context and the pathology clearly makes a difference. And it makes a difference because, as I alluded to, the pathologist cannot tell you the answer. The pathologist can only give you a pattern. And only the physician who's seeing the the, uh, patient and understands the clinical context can put these things together. Because the UIP pathologic pattern can be seen in a number of clinical contexts. And I've already alluded to the outcome (laughs) being different depending upon clinical context. It turns out that idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is not the the only fibrosing lung disease that makes a difference. But it's taught us a lot about other things. And so when I see a patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, I go through the following. Fibrosing lung disease, is this IPF? Because the odds are in the universe of fibrosing lung disease, it probably is if they've come to see me. But I actively ask the following question, is there an identifiable cause or association? We talked about infection, we talked about genetic disorders, systemic disease exposures. If there are, there's another recognized cause or association, this is not IPF, this is some other disease, and that's probably better for the patient. If there's no identifiable cause or association, then we look at the high-resolution CT scan pattern, and if there is a UIP high-resolution CT scan pattern, I'm actually done. I no longer have to send the patient for additional evaluation. They don't need a surgical lung biopsy, they don't need a bronchoscopy. That's idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in our, the way we currently define the disease. However, at least half of the patients will not have a typical or confident UIP pattern, and those are the patients in whom we need to consider whether a surgical lung biopsy is useful. So some people are too sick, some folks we think may be too old to undergo that, but if you need a definitive diagnosis in those folks, that's what you need to do. And sometimes you'll do a surgical lung biopsy and see something other than a UIP lesion. Again, that's not IPF. However, if you see UIP, you've made the diagnosis. So the diagnostic tree is actually much simplified, but it's also made it much easier to divine alternatives to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which in my mind has been just as important. So I alluded to previously this distinction between idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and nonspecific interstitial pneumonia, which is prognostically important even if you choose not to treat there are underlying clinical features that you can help understand what's happening with the disease, and so one of those things that we've done over time (coughs) is learn that if you do something as simple as ask the patient on a routine basis, how breathless are you, that you can tell what's gonna happen over time. So worsening symptoms is a very bad prognostic sign. Since we've not made the complete transition to patient-reported outcomes, we use other things. So here, looking at the spirometric value of forced vital capacity, or FVC, what we've been able to show is folks who have worsening forced vital capacity have a much different prognosis than those patients with a stable FVC or an improved FVC. And this is almost over any time frame. So if this occurs over six weeks, over three months, over six months, or 12 months, regardless of the time frame, declining FTC shows a bad outcome in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It turns out that same phenomena is true in other forms of fibrosing lung disease. So here's a nice study from our colleagues in Korea that showed exactly the same thing. When they compared patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis who had declines in their FVC by greater than 10% or less than 10% and showed exactly the same pattern with NSIP with changes of less than or greater than than 10% that patients who decline are dying at a more rapid rate than those patients who are relatively stable. Okay, so that's interesting. But here's the other thing that we showed, they showed. When they looked at multivariate analysis of predictors of outcome in fibrosing lung disease, they showed what many people have shown before, that gender seems to have make a difference, men die a little bit faster than women. The initial diffusing capacity or measure of gas exchange is a strong prognostic predictor. But the six months change in FEC was a really potent predictor. But the interesting thing is one, if you had that information, if you know what the progression of disease is over time, the underlying pathologic pattern no longer matters. So at baseline, if you have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or NSIP, that is a good difference for you to see because you can make distinctions on prognosis. However, six months later, regardless of what that underlying diagnosis is, if you've had progressive fibrosing lung disease, it's measured by symptoms, by physiology, or by chest imaging, that is a bad prognostic sign. And you are now on that same curve that one sees with IPF. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis is another disorder. Many of you in this room might have some history or uh, experience with this. It's basically an allergic reaction limited to the lung. We see it in a lot of situations. We often talk about bird breeders' lung as the metaphorical example of what hypersensitivity is. But patients with hypersensitivity pneumonitis can have a, a wide variety of responses. Identifying the antigen and getting rid of it, some people might have complete resolution. Recurrent disease or progression to fibrosis can all occur. This is a long-term follow-up study of farmers in Finland who had farmer's lung, so an exposure to moldy hay. Many of these patients had continued exposure. But what I would like to highlight is not only the presence of emphysema as a complication and a potential uh, risk in the setting of Hypersensitivity pneumonitis, obviously worse than smokers, but the presence of fibrosis, both in the quote controls, which were farmers that supposedly didn't have hypersensitivity, but those who clearly had fibrosing, about 20% <coughs> of those, and probably includes this group of patients who simply had miliary changes on their CT, uh, on their plain chest radiograph. We know that hypersensitivity is one of those things that if you get to the point of having a surgical lung biopsy done can show a variety of patterns. And again, I point out this UIP pattern that can be a complication of hypersensitivity, so it's not seen in just idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But if you have a pure cellular interstitial pneumonia or organizing pneumonia, your outcome is quite a bit different than if you have a UIP or fibrosing pattern. And if you have a fibrosing NSIP pattern, it's a little bit in between. This idea has actually been extended. So we saw a series of patients with hypersensitivity in our practice, some of whom had a pure cellular disease or non-fibrotic disease, and some of whom had as little as 5% of the surgical lung biopsy affected by fibrosis. So what we would consider a trivial amount of fibrosis on the surgical lung biopsy. The trouble is, as you can see, that even a trivial amount of fibrosis on that lung biopsy in the setting of hypersensitivity pneumonitis, regardless of whether you identified the antigen, regardless of how they got treated, turned out to be a very bad prognostic sign. Suggesting, at least to us, that the presence of fibrosis in the lung is not a good thing to have. You can extend this observation exactly to what we've done with IPF. So finding a patient with hypersensitivity pneumonitis who has CT findings of fibrosis, turns out you can make distinctions about what their outcome will look like. And again, these are Kaplan-Meier curve focused on mortality. So fibrosing hypersensitivity is a bad story. And we know that in IPF that the extent of disease on high-resolution CT scan actually is a good predictor of outcome, so the more disease burden, sort of like measuring the size of a lung cancer, but the disease burden actually dictates outcome. The same thing is true in hypersensitivity pneumonitis. That more fibrotic disease seen on CT, you don't even need a surgical lung biopsy now, is associated with worse survival. And it turns out, interestingly enough, We thought that this issue of acute exacerbations occurred only in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But as we paid more and more attention to this and we tried to get a finer and finer phenotype, we recognized that patients with fibrosing forms of hypersensitivity pneumonitis can have exactly the same clinical scenario. They can be relatively stable and then suddenly present with respiratory failure. Yesterday I talked with some of your colleagues about rheumatoid arthritis and connective tissue disease and I showed this curve that if you take an age and gender match control group and then look at patients just with rheumatoid arthritis that there is clearly a mortality impact of having rheumatoid arthritis alone. It turns out that much of that is probably driven by the presence of extra-articular manifestations, so (laughs) non-joint manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis it has a curve that looks like this, which is probably responsible for the difference between normals and those with RA. It turns out, if you give those patients interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis, that that curve overlaps completely with other forms of extra articular rheumatoid arthritis, providing an enormous negative impact on survival, the presence of RA related lung disease. And oddly, in, but similarly to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, despite the profound beneficial impact of recent changes in, ther- in therapy in rheumatoid arthritis, with declines in overall mortality, it turns out that the mortality associated with interstitial lung disease, particularly the fibrosing form of interstitial lung disease that complicates rheumatoid arthritis, is actually increased significantly. 10% in this setting in both men and women and in clinically identifiable interstitial lung disease, has improved dramatically, increased dramatically, despite the profound benefits that biologic therapy has had in rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and it turns out that these patients get acute exacerbations as well. So something about the presence of the fibrosing lung disease puts you at risk for the development of acute exacerbations. And here I show a nice study from our colleagues in in, uh, Korea that showed the outcome of patients with rheumatoid arthritis-associated interstitial lung disease over a longitudinal uh, study showing that almost one in five of their patients with RAILD developed an acute exacerbation over time, almost always resulting in death. All right, so what I've tried to tell you about is what we think we understand about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and why we think that this might be a a model for other forms of fibrosing lung disease. And so what I wanna leave you with are some discussions about what we've done with treatment uh, over time uh, and why that's been a problem. So since Dr. Henelow and I have been doing this I can, with reasonable comfort, say that the IPF trial results have been disappointing. I think you'll agree with me. Um, And so this is what some of that looks like. In the mid-1990s, we did the first, um, and I say we in the very broadest sense of the world, the IPF community, did the first multicenter treatment trial uh, in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And it took that long because people said, this disease is too rare. It's too widely distributed with individual patients to ever do a big enough study. So don't don't waste your time on this. Well, the single biggest importance of the interferon beta study was that we were actually able to do a multicenter study that had over 150 patients in it, and we didn't know what we were doing. We struggled with the diagnosis. We struggled with inclusion and exclusion criteria, but we proved that the study could be done Uh, in a prospective, interventional way. And it made the first big step for us to actually understand what the disease was doing, rather than depending upon anecdotal observational study. And I can't overemphasize that enough, and I will tell you why in a minute. So that was a negative study. We had no impact, as best we could tell, on symptoms, physiology, or chest imaging, but we were able to do it. There are a number of subsequent studies that have been done, and I only highlight a handful here, because they've all been multi-centered, they've all been multinational, they've all been had good control arms with the Tannercept study, being a study that had a true placebo. So the control arm was untreated. Prior to that time, we did not think we could do a <laughs> placebo arm because there was standard therapy. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Endothelin antagonism, uh, kinase in- inhibition, all negative studies. Then there were a series of studies done with a compound called profenadone. This had been in Japan for a while. Two big studies. Unfortunately, one was positive and one was negative. There was some discussion about the endpoint chosen, but I don't think there was any question that one study looked like it was positive, at least on the endpoint chosen, but one study was clearly negative, which was really quite disappointing, not surprisingly. And then we did a series of actually larger studies where we tried to understand some of the complications of the disease as well. Extended a, an endothelin antagonism study, which was stopped early because of clearly no benefit, and further interrogation suggested the potential harm. We then did a cuminant study, because there is biologic justification to think that the clotting cascade is associated with the development of fibrosis in a number of ways. There was a small study in Japan suggesting that heparin and heparin-like compounds may provide benefit. So we did a large NIH-sponsored study in the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis network with Coumadin. That was stopped early because of clear harm to patients. And then we did this study, the prednisone of Thrioprin and NAC study, which was really this, the standard therapy, prednisone and azathioprine, had been standard therapy for at least 25 years. I used it regularly. I'd used prednisone and cyclophosphamide regularly up to that time. And acetylcysteine got added a few years uh, a few years ago because of the potential benefit seen with maintaining physiology and preventing adverse reactions. And this was the reason that it was very difficult to determine whether or not one can do a placebo-controlled trial, because this is how you treated patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. <laughs> so we did a large multi-center s- study in, in the US. That study was stopped early for the following reason. Patients treated with that regimen in the active arms had increased risk of death and hospitalization. So the standard therapy that most of us had used for more than 25 years was actually harmful. What I want to say that, I want to say it again. The therapy that we used for 20 years was actually harmful, and so how did we get there? The combination of a desperate patient and a desperate doctor, something is really bad here, we have to do something, led to tremendous potential harm over time. This is just a plea to do the studies correctly up front because no matter how much good you want to do, I now have personal experience of having spent years probably causing harm to a number of my patients, clearly unintentionally, and this is what it looked like. So combination therapy is associated with a significant increase in the likelihood of death when compared to placebo. Here's the time to death or hospitalization, dramatic difference, study stopped early despite conventional therapy. So what you see is a bad level of progress here. A number of negative studies with the most three recent studies we've done considered at least harmful or potentially harmful. That's not the path we want to take. So recently, uh, uh, one of the issues of New England Journal of Medicine actually had three studies on idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And I just want to, in the last few minutes I have, highlight a couple of those things to, and try to leave you with a mo, uh, note of optimism. So this was the latest and largest uh, perfenidone trial. And what this trial appears to show, that if measured, a spirometric measure of change in lung size, force vital capacity, remember I showed you that a declining force vital capacity is associated with worse outcome. What they were able to show is that patients in the actively treated perfenodome arm, their FECs declined at a slower rate than those patients on placebo, suggesting benefit at least in the on the physiologic side. Uh, on the physiologic side. If you measure the number of patients who had a 10% or greater decline in FEC, there were fewer patients in the perfenodome arm who had that decline, the 10% often being a threshold that we use to consider clinical significance. Unfortunately, there was no difference in how the patients felt. So while you slowed the decline, remember we're not talking about improvement here. We're simply about talking about slowing the decline that one would normally see. Unfortunately, there was no change in their level of breathlessness, so their symptoms didn't change. But this treatment comes with a cost, We've understood this and now over many years that while generally considered safe, there are a number of significant adverse events associated with it, often related to GI, nausea, weight loss, anorexia, and rash. There's a sun sensitivity with this that generally requires almost every patient to be very careful in the sun. In exactly the same issue, Uh, there was this discussion of a new triple angiokinase called nintetinib that actually showed almost identical results. Two simultaneous trials presented. The decline in forced vital capacity over time in the actively treated arm, nintetinib twice a day versus placebo from the first study and from Impulses II. The second study showing almost identical benefit in terms of the decline in forced vital capacity When you looked at that annual decline, you cut it in half in both studies, confirming the potential benefit. And there was also this sense that when you looked at acute exacerbations, again, I refer to these as clinically relevant events because patients either died in the hospital or died within a year thereafter, that there appear to be fewer acute exacerbations in the actively treated arm when compared with those of placebo. But again, this comes with a cost Interestingly enough, these also have significant GI side effects. We have a little bit of information about kinase inhibition, uh, so this is not uh, unsurprising. And there are likely to be others that we will run into. But with that, I want to summarize. IPF is a specific disorder. We've defined it using a specific clinical context, i.e., the exclusion of other causes of fibrosing lung disease, a specific chest imaging pattern, UIP and high resolution CT scan and a pathologic pattern, UIP seen under surgical lung biopsy conditions. The prognosis is quite poor and it is clearly increasing in prevalence and we don't know where that plateau is yet. However, I'd like to put that within the context of other forms of fibrosing lung disease and that it occurs in a variety of clinical contexts and it might have other names but might treat the patient in specifically the same way. And I want to say that because we think we are on the threshold of therapeutic advances and what we clearly do not want to do is what we've done before in desperation, treating with drugs that we don't understand the potential adverse consequences of, but also not create therapeutic orphans or drugs that might be beneficial using a mechanism that might approach fibrosis in general and prevent patients who otherwise might benefit From receiving it. With that, I will stop. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you very much.
0: Kevin, that was great. Can you reflect a little bit for us on that small cohort of people who do well? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're teasing out of that group?
2: Yeah, it's a really important question and something that we've struggled with. Problem is, we've identified in almost every cohort of patients that we deal with, and this has been amplified by treatment trials, that about 10% of the patients clearly are at least stable and sometimes even show measurable benefit by FBC, say their symptoms are lessened. We don't understand that. So the problem with the treatment trials, as you can see, is what has happened is We do a treatment trial over 52 or 104 weeks and it's negative. And you can imagine the sponsor has lost any enthusiasm they might have for continuing to use resources to follow patients beyond the end of the trial. And so what we've lost because of that is our ability to interrogate those patients who do well, remain stable, sometimes improve, to understand why they differ. To date, there have been too few patients to collect biologic samples and get a signal that we think is relevant. But it's a very important point, and I'm glad you brought it up.
1: So I assume some, somewhere an IPF patient has had a lung transplant. Absolutely. And the question is whether the disease refers in the
2: transplant. So as best we can tell, fibrosis does not recur in the transplanted lung. Part of that, and and so that's a great thing. The trouble is, of course, with transplant, you're just resetting the clock, right? Because having a transplant is a mortal disease as well with a median survival. That is not fundamentally different, maybe five years. So you've reset the clock. I'd always thought that maybe, just maybe, those patients would develop obliterative bronchiolitis or fibrosing small airways disease, a known complication of transplant, at a greater frequency. But they don't. So they do not seem to have an intrinsic drive to create fibrosis regardless of what goes on. Now, there are lots of explanations why they still might, but you don't see that. Maybe if you start treating people with aggressive immunosuppression prior to. Putting in the new lung, maybe that modifies the environment enough. Nobody knows. All we know is that right now that we've not seen a recurrence of IPF in a patient in the new allograft. Is the uh, IPF community contemplating a um, trial of both the um, antifibrotic and uh, kinase uh, inhibition strategy? Yeah. So I was at a, I was at a conference a year, uh, six months or so ago. And that question sort of came came up because people were already saying, "Well, I don't know what the durability of the response is. I'll just add another. I'll just add the other drug on top of it." So, so here's what here's my take on that, um, which is two things. So, number one, we have no idea what the drug drug interactions are. Zero, right? We already know what the adverse event profile is, and some of them are overlapping, which could be a significant um, problem, uh, and, and I want to highlight the adverse react the adverse event issue because as somebody who's caused harm, right, going forward, just because I think it's the right thing to do, immediately you should ask yourself: Are we sure what the what the risk association with this is? The last piece is the co- there's a system cost here that if we think that the insurance companies are going to be without hesitation willing to add. <laughs> Fifty to a hundred thousand dollar a year drugs on top of one another, just because we think it's a good idea, we are mistaken. So um, these drugs are going to be enormously expensive, uh, and it's going to be difficult for us to do those kinds of studies.
0: So um, you showed that the. Being- the uh, incidence of IPF is increasing, but this is also at a time when cigarette tobacco use is declining. Yes. So, can you speak to that interaction and uh, whether what, what that is? cigarette smoke protective or something?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, it's interesting you, you asked that question because we, <coughs> I, I and my colleagues at National Jewish have previously published a paper a number of years ago that suggested that active cigarette smokers did better than those the way to quit, uh, or non-smokers. Now, in retrospect, this is almost assuredly a healthy smoker effect, where healthy smokers come to attention early, they're probably earlier in their disease for a whole variety of reasons. However, recognizing that it turns out that smoking is protective against hypersensitivity pneumonitis, so it actually decreases your likelihood there. And that's just an entree to this issue of host environment interaction. Right, so smoking—I do not—I don't think any of us think smoking is unique. It's just an easily quantifiable exposure to the lung. Right, there's been a lot of work thinking about how do you define and quantify exposures. It turns out to be enormously difficult to figure out what the expo- inhalational exposure is, but it's really easy to measure what the what smoking is. Right, we do pack years, and so that's an easy way to understand it. But there is a clear risk. So if you take populations of patients at risk for the development of lung fibrosis. So for example, patients with a polymorphism in the promoter region of MUC5B, patients who smoke have a higher risk of development of clinically significant disease. We've had families of patients who carry the polymorphism, only the smokers have the disease, the non-smokers don't. So it's clear that smoking is associated with the development of the disease. The question is, how long does it take, and how much exposure does it take, to put you at risk for the development of clinical disease? A separate issue is, if you look at the National Emphysema treatment, uh, uh, treatment Trial, the, the NET study, where they did CT scans on a bunch of emphysema patients, about, because the vast majority, almost all of them smoked, it turns out about 10% of those patients also had radiographic evidence of a little bit of lung fibrosis. So there is this clear relationship between smoking and the development of fibrosing lung disease, as well as a bunch of other things.
1: Last question, Derek. So you, talk, you talk yesterday, you talked yesterday, great talk about uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis associated with disease. And they're very similar, patients with that patterns are very similar, the behavior is very similar to idiopathic fibrosis, And rheumatoid arthritis is an inflammatory disease. Yeah. So and you see inflammation sometimes again, in the biopsy, more so than. Is the (coughs) inflammation and the fibrotic process in any
2: way related? So the question is, we see inflammation in some of these biopsies in the setting of fibrosis. And what's the relationship between those two things? So Rick is being a little disingenuous because he knows that this question has actually been active for 30 plus years about, about those two things. And we spent a lot of time. And there are lots of books written about how Fibrosis is the result of uncontrolled inflammation. That ongoing uncontrolled inflammation results in fibrosis and then in progressive fibrosis. And that makes (coughs) rational sense, right? If you get a bad skin rash and you don't do anything to address it, it eventually heals with a scar. That makes sense. I could live with that. The trouble is, every time we've used that as a a mechanism to intervene, so prednisone and azathioprine, Anti-inflammatory therapy used for a long time, obviously not beneficial. At our center, because of Talmadge King, we used prednisone and cyclophosphamide for many years before we stopped doing that. Probably as potent a regimen as you can, that's anti-inflammatory. No impact on disease outcome. No change from from placebo. Um, We know that we can treat the inflammatory component in some of the connective tissue diseases, in hypersensitivity pneumonitis, I can actually make some patients better for a while by getting rid of the, quote, cellular infiltration by aggressively treating it. However, I have no impact on the fibrosis. And lots of those patients, I'd say the majority, the fibrosis progresses despite the inflammation, I think, going away. So what I've evolved to is the is one of two things. Number one, either they're true, true, and unrelated. Me, meaning the presence of fibrosis and the presence of inflammation are both there in response to something, but interact minimally, or not at all, and can progress separately, or that the inflammation is actually a response to the fibrosis, and that I can't tell you.
0: Well,
1: Kevin, thank you so much for making (laughs)